All right, good morning. Um, before, before we get into our passage, um, I wanted to talk a little bit, just briefly, about technical difficulties. Um, we have, as a church, we have, we have kind of two sets of core values. One of them are kind of our, our outward-facing core values as a church that talk about who we want to be, and they're what's you know, up on our website and what most people know. But we also kind of have this, this secret set of core values that are more internal about, about how we want to do things as a church. And, and one of those, the reason why I bring it up this morning, is that we want to do things with an excellent authenticity. And what that means is that we as a church, we want to we do things well. We want things to go well. But the, the more important word for us, rather than excellent, is authenticity. We want to remember that we're people. That, that we're broken, flawed human beings, and that of everyone that does anything for our church, I am the only one that gets paid. And so, uh, since we're a church that is set up that way, and since we, you know, take everything down and set it up every week, there's going to be weeks where uh, Microsoft Windows decides to, instead of sending the audio of the video to the you know $10,000 worth of sound equipment, it's going to send it through the HDMI cable to a two-inch speaker that's built into the projector. Uh, there are going to be weeks where even though the slides are in the, our program, when we put them up and it's got the words there, when the you know projector guy goes to put them on the screen, they're blank. And instead of getting to look at a screen... <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, that's, that's, that's who we are, right? Things, things are not always going to go well. If we ever have, you know, like, a string of Sundays in a row where everything goes perfectly, like, I, I'm concerned about that because I don't want us to forget who we are as people. And so uh, I would encourage you, I know that when, when you're trying to worship God and sing a song and, you know, the slides get stuck, or they don't advance, or the words aren't there, or the words are wrong, or there's a typo, uh, there's that tendency to turn around and to look at the people back there and be like, what is going on? Uh, so I would encourage you to remember two things. Number one, if you were back there, the same thing would happen. Only everybody would be looking at you. And number two, we can worship by singing songs and we can worship by how we respond when the words aren't on the slides or when the sound doesn't come out for the video. And so I, I just hope that for us as a church, right, we're, we're a family. And in our families, we know that things don't always go the way we want them to go. And we should respond in those moments like members of a family and not as, as consumers at a business or, or audience members at a concert. That's not who we are as a church. And so let's, let's be uh, authentic together as we strive for excellence, recognizing that, that perfection is not going to be attainable by us. Um, so let's, let's get into our passage this morning. Hopefully, you know, the mic will continue to work for the rest of the sermon. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to read verses 26 through 39. Again, that's Luke chapter 8, and we're going to be in verses 26 through 39. Then 
they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would not break the bonds and be driven by the but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then thanked him, or then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that you give it to us for our instruction, for our encouragement, to challenge us and convict us, to grow us in our faith, to, to draw us back to yourself, and to, uh, to put us on a path where we are renouncing our sin and, and seeking to walk in obedience to you. God, we pray this morning as we look at this passage in Luke that you would, would send your spirit to help us to understand it together this morning, that, that we uh, would be encouraged by seeing your son interact with this demon-possessed man in this passage, that we would uh, see uh, ways in which we need to, uh, to turn from our sin and turn towards faith in Jesus. Father, we pray this morning that you would use your word by your spirit to challenge us and convict us, that, that you would, would send your spirit to apply your truth to our lives. Jesus, we thank you for, for saving this man in this passage. We thank you for, for coming to save us from our sin and to, to free us from our oppression. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this passage kind of picks up on the heels of last week. Last week, right, they, the passage ended with them in this boat where there's this storm and Jesus calms the storm. And today they get to the other side of the lake and they're in this, this place that he says, or Luke tells us, is the country of the Gerasenes. Now, if you were to, to flip over to Matthew, when Matthew talks about this story, he says it's the area of the Gadarenes. And so there's this kind of uh, 
tricky little problem if we look at Matthew and we look at Mark and we look at Luke where they kind of have different names for the same place. And a lot of people make a really big deal out of this and say, you know, there's this, you know, this huge mistake in the Bible. But I think that what is happening here and what a lot of commentators seem to say is that they're, they're using two different names for the same place. And so, for example, when I talk to people around here uh, or in Missouri about where I'm from, I usually say I'm from St. Charles. I'm from St. Charles, Missouri, because most people around here are familiar enough with the St. Louis area that they know where St. Charles is or they know what it is. But if I'm further away from Missouri, like if I'm down in Texas, if people ask where I'm from, I say, oh, I'm from St. Louis. Because they don't know St. Charles is in the metro, St. Louis metro area. They don't know it's a suburb. They don't know anything about that. If I'm even further away, I might just say I'm from Missouri. If I'm over in India, I might say I'm from the United States. Because if I tell them, oh, I'm from St. Charles, they have no frame of reference for that. And that seems to be what's happening here. Is that, And in Luke, he, he's talking about a certain area that's within a different area. And so that's why the gospel authors use different names. But really... What's important is not where this happens. What's important is what happens in this passage. So Jesus gets out of the boat in this place. You know, he's in St. Charles or St. Louis or Missouri. He gets out here. And when he gets out, this uh, man who had demons comes up and meets him. He says that he's a man from the city who had demons. Demons, plural. And we're going to find out more about that in a minute. He comes out. It's also worth noting the way that this Luke describes this. He says that he, he had demons. This man had demons. And we're going to talk about this in a bit. But the way the New Testament talks about demons and, and demonic oppression, I think, is, is different than the way we normally think about it. Here, it's the man that has the demons, not the demons that have the man. And we're going to talk about that again later. So a long time, Luke says, this man had worn no clothes, he'd not lived in a house, but among the tombs. He's out among the tombs, and for the Jews, being out among the tombs would have meant that he was unclean. But remember, Luke is a Gentile, and so he's talking to us about the fact that this guy was out among the tombs, not to emphasize his uncleanness, but to emphasize the fact that he's isolated from society. He's out there on his own, right? People don't, don't live in graveyards. People don't spend time in graveyards uh, unless they, they kind of have a specific reason to be there. And so at the very beginning of the, this series on the Gospel of Luke, we talked about how Luke is going to kind of weave these twin themes throughout the Gospel of Luke of salvation and community. This is a place where we see community emphasized. Jesus takes this guy in this passage who's out here on his own, isolated from society. He's an outcast. He's someone nobody wants to be around. And he's going to take that guy and bring him into his family. He's going to bring him into his community by saving him. He's out here. He's among the tombs. And we saw, sees Jesus. He cries out. And this is what he says. He says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's interesting, right? Because at the end of our passage last week, the disciples see Jesus kind of calm the storm and they respond, like, who is this guy, right? What sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The disciples don't know, but the demons do, right? They have more knowledge of who Jesus is than his own disciples do. And so last week we talked about the difference between knowing things about God and actually having a relationship with him. We see that play out in this passage today, right? The demons know more about Jesus than the disciples do. But that doesn't mean they have a relationship with him. 
right? Knowing him. They know Jesus. They just aren't quite sure who he is yet. The demons just know about him, but they don't have a relationship with him. And they say, I beg you, do not torment me. I beg you, do not torment me. And here, I think that we could read this passage as these you know, demons tell Jesus, you know, don't, don't torment us, and walk away with it thinking God is you know, some sort of sadistic torturer. These demons are you know, afraid of him you know, just being really mean to them and punishing them um, and torturing them. But that's, that's actually something that came up in the book we read last month from Men's Fellowship. And the author brought out that there's a significant difference between torture and torment. Right? Torture is something that happens for a purpose. Somebody tortures someone else in order to get something out of them. They want, they want information or they want enjoyment. They do it for a specific reason. Uh, the New Testament, the Gospels, uh, the Bible does not paint God as somebody like that. God has all the information he needs. Right? At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has no reason to torture someone. Torment, on the other hand, is, is being uh, severely or deeply in pain or distress. So torture is, is causing pain and distress for a specific reason. Torment is experiencing that kind of pain or distress. But what's important is that all torture causes torment, but not all torment is caused by torture. So right, if, you're, if you, you know, fall... Off a, off a deck on the back of your house and break your leg, you're going to be in severe pain. You're going to be in torment. But somebody's not torturing you. Now, if your like, husband or wife comes up to you and starts pulling on that broken leg, then you're being tortured. And we should probably talk about that. Uh, not all torment is caused by torture. Here, this passage is not saying that you know, God is this sadistic torturer that just wants to punish these demons. Uh, they're afraid of torment because they know what's coming. They know that God's judgment is going to fall, and they're here hoping that, that hasn't, or that's not happening yet, that the time isn't here yet. And they say, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. They say, don't torment me. And Luke explains why they were afraid of torment. He said he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And he tells us some about this guy's experience. Uh, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So this, this guy uh, is kept out here by the tombs. He's been bound with, with, with chains, and or chains and shackles. Uh, he's been kept under guard. These people in this community have been working very, very hard to keep this guy out here on his own, right? He's broken the chains. They get new chains. He breaks the bonds. They get new ones. They're, they're, they're keeping him under guard, uh, I think, partly for his own protection, but also for their protection. This is this guy's experience at the hands of this demon. He's driven out into the desert. Jesus asks the demon, he says, what is your name? And he says, legion, for many demons had entered him. Uh, in the Roman army, a legion is a group of 6,000 soldiers. I don't think we need to you know, say that that means this guy has 6,000 demons. Uh, but it does mean that he's got a lot. Right at the beginning of Luke chapter 8, we were introduced to Mary Magdalene, and, and, and Luke told us that she had seven demons. This guy is far worse off than she is. Later, they're, they're going to be sent into the pigs, and all the pigs are going to rush downhill into the water and drown. And Mark tells us that there were 2,000 pigs. So there's lots of demons in this guy that's being oppressed by them. 
Uh, they say their name is Legion. And he tells us in verse 31 more about them begging him not to torment them. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Uh, the abyss is this, this bottomless pit that's talked about in the book of Revelation where God is going to punish Satan and his angels. Uh, for, a, for a thousand years. We're going we're gonna to read this passage in a little bit. But so they're saying, they're, they're asking Jesus for the judgment not to fall yet. They're, they're, they want more time. They want more time on the earth to do what demons do, which is steal, kill, and destroy. They're asking him to kind of put that off. And it's interesting how Jesus responds. Uh, Says, and now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. So the demons asked Jesus, they're, they're saying, we don't want our torment to come yet, we don't want our judgment to fall yet, we don't want to be tossed in the abyss yet, instead let us go into these pigs. And Jesus says, yes. Verse 33, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. So Jesus allows these demons to go out of this man into these pigs. Mark tells us it was 2,000 pigs. These 2,000 pigs, immediately after the demons entering them, rush down a steep slope into the water and die. Why? Right? This is, this is a, a pretty significant loss. Right? These are, these are someone's pigs. So there's, there's economic loss here, there, there's food loss, there's, there's bacon that is wasted. Uh, this, is, this is significant, and we, we, we should look at this and say, why does Jesus allow this to happen? I think there's a, a couple answers. The first is, yes, it, it is tragic that 2,000 pigs get immediately drowned in the water. But what they do when they get in the pigs show us what they were wanting to do with that man. And while 2,000 pigs is a, is a significant loss of life, pigs are not created in the image of God. They're not like us. 2,000 pigs dying is less of a tragedy than this man dying. So Jesus cast the demon out of them into the pigs in order to save this guy's life. The second reason why he allows this is because it's not time yet for the judgment to fall. Uh, Romans, or Revelation 20, 1 through 3, is going to be up on the slides. This is where John has a vision of what, what happens at the end, what happens to the devil and his angels. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. That's, that's the abyss. It's the same thing the demon is talking about in our passage. And a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So uh, Revelation tells us that the devil is going to be thrown into this bottomless pit, chained up. He's going to be chained up there for a thousand years. After that a thousand years, he's going to get out for a short time, and then God is going to pour out his judgment on him and toss him and his angels into the lake of fire. That's what's going to happen at the end. 
We don't have time this morning to get into all that imagery, but it's important for us to see that what's going to happen to these demons that Jesus casts out of the man into this pig is that eventually they are going to be punished for what they've done. They are going to be judged by God because they have rebelled against him and rejected him as king and that they are continually and constantly working in his creation against what God wants to do with it and for it. God is going to pour out judgment on them. And the reason why he doesn't in this passage is because he's letting more time elapse so that more and more and more and more and more people who are created in the image of God can have an opportunity to repent of their sins and find forgiveness in Jesus. He's waiting because he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's waiting because he is full of patience so that his people might have time to believe in him. And so while there are often situations and times in which we want his judgment to fall now, we should know that it hasn't yet so that more people like us can trust in Jesus. And so yes, it's, it's tragic that these pigs die. But the alternative would be more tragic. It says when the herdsmen saw what happened, they, they flee, they, they run away, and they tell it in the city and they tell it in the country. I think what happens here is they go to the city and they tell the city people, hey, this is what these pigs did. And the city people are like, we don't know anything about pigs. Is that normal? And so then they go out into the country and they tell the country people about the pigs. And the country people are like, that's weird. Let's go check it out. So all these people, uh, they, they find out what happened. They go to see what happened. And they come to where Jesus is. And uh, they find this guy from whom the demons had left. And he's sitting at Jesus' feet. He's clothed, which is a big improvement, and he's in his right mind, and they are afraid. They're afraid because they have tried and tried and tried and tried to make this guy like this. Right? They've tied him up. They've chained him up. They've bound him. They've put guards around him. They've tried to make him a person that can fit into society, but they've failed. And now there's this guy, Jesus, who has this guy fully clothed, in his right mind, sitting at his feet, participating in the community in a way a person is supposed to participate in the community. And they're afraid because Jesus has a power that they don't have. Jesus can do what they can't do. Jesus can heal this man and cast out these demons, and that scares them because they don't have that ability for themselves. So those who had seen what happened, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And here, if you look in your Bibles, if you've got an ESV, the word demon-possessed man probably has a footnote after it. In my Bible, down at the bottom, it's number three, it says, gives you the, the Greek word, and then it says, elsewhere rendered as oppressed by demons. Another way we could, we could translate it would be demonized. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think normally when we as, as you know, Western American Christians think about, about demons and, and oppression or possession, I think that we get our image of what demonic activity looks like more from Hollywood than we do from Scripture. You know, we picture a person whose like, head spins around and they're speaking in a low voice in Latin and doing all kinds of weird stuff like floating in the air. Um, but that, that's not how the New Testament talks about it. Um, it's often that 
Uh, you know, we think of, of possession as like this, this internal thing uh, where the demons are like inside people and like controlling them like puppets. Um, but the reality is that that's not the way the New Testament always talks about it. Sometimes there are cases like that, like this guy who's driven out into the desert by demons, or there's a boy in Matthew that's, that's thrown down into the fire or thrown into water by the demons that are oppressing him. Uh, but often the language is more external, like the people have the demons or they're oppressed by the demons. It's not that the demon is inside the person possessing them. Uh, and I think that the reason why that's important is because it's important for us to recognize that there's this spectrum. You know, it's not no demonic influence to people with their heads spinning around. Like, those aren't the only two options we get in the New Testament. We get a spectrum in which people are increasingly oppressed by demons. Uh, And the reason why it's important is because demons are real. Right? And and it's not just the stuff that's going on in Tower Town and in in Tibet and in China. There is demonic oppression in our own city. I know that we don't like to think about it or talk about it because it it seems weird. And if we're honest, it freaks us out and scares us a little bit. But what happens in this passage can happen in Hannibal. So there's this reality that demonic oppression is a thing. And it's not just, the choice isn't just between no demonic influence and this crazy over-the-top, like, puppet masters. Um, They are, this guy was oppressed by many demons. Um, And so he probably is, we could probably use the language of possession here. But that's not always the way it works. There's this book that if you're curious about these things, uh, we read it as an elder team. And it's called Spiritual Warfare, by the, the author's name is, is Carl Payne, uh, which I think is an awesome name if you're going to talk about demonic activity. Um, but yeah, he, he talks about it a lot. I mean, it's not, it's not perfect. Uh, there's also a newer book that I don't know the name by uh, David Pallison on spiritual warfare. I have not read it, but everything I've read from him is great, and so I would assume that one is also. But uh, The focus, though, like Daniel, when he talked about a passage with demons in us, the the focus for us shouldn't be on the demons in this passage. The focus should be on Jesus and what he's doing. And so if you want to talk more about those things, like let's talk afterwards or some other time. What's important for us to see is the response that happens. The people, right, they're freaked out. They tell Jesus to go away. They want him to leave. And so Jesus gets in the boat to return. But before he does that, this guy who, who had these demons, who was uh, oppressed by them, comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus to take him with him. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus where he is. And instead of letting him, Jesus says no, which is another surprising thing for Jesus to do in this passage. Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Instead of this guy getting to be in relationship with Jesus by being with him, he gets to be in relationship with Jesus by living out his mission where he's at, by sharing the good news of what Jesus has done for him, where he lives, with the people in that city that had known him as this uh, demon-oppressed guy. So what we should see, though, is this difference between verse 39 and verse 40, uh, or the end of verse 39. Jesus says, go home and declare how much God has done for you. But when Luke explains what he does, he says this, and he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And right, that's not surprising to us because we're people who have trusted in Christ. We believe that Jesus is God. But at this time, 
when Luke is writing his gospel. This is a really significant claim. Jesus, or Luke is, is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is God. He is the one who has power over demons. He is the one who has authority over his creation. He is the one who, who can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, according to his good pleasure, because he is God. He is the one who is the Lord of all. He is the Son of the Most High God. Because of that, he can command the demons to leave, and they leave. Not just that, but they need his permission to go wherever they go. This guy recognizes that Jesus is God. And so when Jesus tells him to go say what God has done, he goes and he says what he has done for him, what Jesus has done for him. He goes on his way preaching the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so when we think about what our response to this passage should be, our response to this passage uh, should not be uh, to focus on demons and spiritual warfare and read books. Yes, I gave recommendations, but like, don't, don't waste your life studying those things. Waste your life knowing Jesus. And maybe study the other things that kind of help you know him more. Our passage, or our, our response to this passage, I think that what we should see is, is what these people did for this guy. His community pushed him to the outside. They, they chained him up, they locked him up, they put him under guard, they got him away from them, uh, potentially to protect him, but, but mostly to protect them. Um, but the important thing is that they couldn't do for this guy what he needed. They couldn't save him. They couldn't free him from the oppression that he faced. They couldn't deliver him. He needed Jesus. And I think the temptation for us is to try to do for other people what only Jesus can do for them. Right? We want to, to just go out into our neighborhoods and, and save everybody. We want to go into our workplaces and save everybody. We want to go into the grocery store and save everybody. We want to do for other people what only Jesus can do for them. And so our response is not to, to be Jesus for those people. I remember growing up, my dad... Uh, sang this song for, for special music at our church one Sunday. Um, and I remember him like rehearsing it at home with like the, the cassette tape, singing along with the instrumental. And the song was by this guy named Bruce Carroll. And the title of it was, Who Will Be Jesus to Them? And there was this, you know, it told the story of, of all these people that had stuff going on in their life. And kind of like the, the main thrust of the song was, who, like, who's going to be Jesus for them uh, or to them? I don't, I don't remember uh, the exact lyrics of the song. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's all bad. You know, I think there's some, some good truth in that message. But the reality is we can't be Jesus for people. Right? We can't even get slides right. We need Jesus to be Jesus for people. Our job is to be like this man who goes out and tells people what he's done. Our job is to tell people that they need him, that they need him to do for them what only he can do. We can't do it. So I hope that we respond to this passage, you know, I think with, with some amazement and worship and praise at who Jesus is and what he can do for this man. If he can do this for this guy, 
uh, he can help me be a better dad and a better husband and a better pastor. He can help you do what you need to do in your life. If he can, can save even the worst cases, he can save us who are worst cases too. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to, to spend some time thinking about your life, thinking about the ways in which you're failing to believe that Jesus can do for you what he can do. And also, look for opportunities in your life. Ask the Spirit to give you opportunities in your life where you can share the good news of what God has done for you in Jesus so that you can point others around you, not to yourself, but to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world to deliver your people and your creation from all forms of oppression, from sin and death and from Satan and his demons. We thank you that there is a day coming in which that deliverance will be fully and finally done once for all. And we pray that even as we long for that day to come, that we would see every day and and hour and minute and moment we have until then as more and more opportunities to tell others about who you are and what you've done so that more men and women who are created in your image might be brought out of isolation and into your community into your family. We pray that you would send your spirit to help us respond rightly uh, in the Lord's Supper and respond rightly in worship uh, regardless of, of what kind of technical difficulties we might have in the rest of the service. We thank you that you are in control of all things so that we don't have to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen.